Welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing, where we believe that affordable housing is the best way to build wealth for your family and friends while doing good in the world. Now, today we welcome Andrew Cairns, and he's an affordable housing investor with over 100 plus units in an expensive market like Austin. Now, who says you can't make money in an expensive market? I mean, Andrew was so kind and so gracious to come on, and his story was really inspiring from how he started his real estate investing career just a month before COVID and everything hit. And he's going to share some of the massive problems he faced just as soon as he closed on his first property. But it was also inspiring because you got to hear how he dealt with all those problems. And he even shared little nuggets of tactical advice on how you can become a successful affordable housing developer. He even gave you quotes on how much does a garage conversion cost and how much can a certain type of foundation issue cost? So what I'm hoping you would take away from today is, one, some of the problems that you're going to face is, isn't as scary as you think it might be, especially when you get assigned a number to it. And that's one of our goals for today with this conversation with Andrew. So let's get into the highlights and let's get into the conversation. For example, the very first property that we purchased, um, we paid, I think, $205,000 for it. Mm-hmm. Um, we got it fixed up and renovated. I think we spent like 45, 50 grand fixing up, tidying it up, got rented out, and then we refinanced it. But by then, the market had went up like dramatically during COVID. Mm. And so um, it was valued at $780,000, I think it was. Like, so Whoa. it was a ridiculous amount of like equity that we built. Um, so we figured out doing the refi, we've done a cash out refi, obviously, and we were like, how do we? now go buy more properties so that turned into two properties right and you get a cash out like that and then the same thing happened again the next ones we bought were in the, the 160s or 180s and they would cash out at the 400s okay welcome to another episode of affordable housing and real estate investing today i got my guy andrew kearns uh he and his wife founded itex and they are a big 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 time affordable housing investor in central texas they have found success just outside of some very, very expensive markets. And today, I'm so excited to welcome Andy onto the podcast because he's going to share all the gems, some numbers, and how to be successful in the affordable housing space. So, Andy, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for being here. And let's just get things started, man. Just tell the, the listeners a little bit about yourself and how did you even get started in real estate investing, man? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, as you can probably tell from the accent, um, I'm not from Central Texas. Um, I'm actually originally from Scotland, um, left Scotland in 2010, moved to Australia, met my wife who is from Austin. Um, we then, you know, moved back to Austin, uh, 2015 timeframe. And I felt like I was kind of behind in life a little bit because I was having so much fun in Australia. I didn't have a 401k and all that kind of stuff. And realized I should probably get on the retirement track a little bit sooner. So started researching different ways to do that and, and real estate continued to pop up. And um, yeah, so I started buying my, bought my first property in 2020, right before COVID, February, 2020. Whoa, that was scary. I didn't know you started in February of 2020. That, that must've been a little scary, right? So you started in real estate investing and obviously this pandemic hit. What was going on through your head? when all this stuff kind of started happening? Were you scared? Like, give us some some insight into your thought process there. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess, like, day one of real estate investing, we closed on the property, and we were getting a roof put on, and the um, 
the roofing contractor didn't realize that the, the electrical mast wasn't actually attached to the side of the house. So when he cut the soffit away, the mast fell, arced out, set fire to the side of the house. So like day one, like I had, you know, very quick introduction to real estate investing, dealing with the city, the police, the fire department, the code department. Like, yeah, it was, we had a lot of um, interesting conversations that like almost day one and then COVID hit, you know, like a week or two after that. So yeah, it was a, it was a rough start. <laughs> oh my God, but you're still here. Whoa. We're still, still here. Yeah. I, um, I would, yeah. Still here. I, I guess I, I mean, the audience can clearly tell this is not scripted, right? So this is like me getting mind blown already because you, in such early in your investing career, you ran into so many problems. And I think this is probably the best example of perseverance, to say the least. But what advice do you have for newer investors coming into the space? And just like, how do you get over that mindset? Because that you're literally talking about their fears, like, oh, I buy the home and it burns down, and then a pandemic hits, and then what if it doesn't, what, what if blah, 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 blah happens, right? How did you overcome all that um, scary stuff I'm, that happened? I'm generally quite a positive person, so I always try and look for the, you know, the, the silver lining and everything. And so that was it. It was, it was, you know, we needed to do some upgrades that I didn't think we had to do. And, you know, um, <laughs> it just, we just had to get on with it, right? I mean, you can either, you know, crawl under your, your bed and, and hide from it, or you can you can just get on with it and figure it out. And I think when you say it so simply like that, Andy, it really opens eyes out to people that are listening to this right now. It's like, hey, when something like this happens, am I just going to figure it out just like Andy did? It's like, Andy just gave us sort of what might be most investors' worst case scenario. Right, that might be a worst case scenario for somebody, but they they're like, oh, this happened to Andy, and he just he just fixed it. Oh my god, <laughs> what what am I so scared of? Um, but let's let's jump forward a little bit. What does your portfolio look like today, and what type of cash flow are we talking about? Like, what are you what are you generating from your real estate portfolio? Yeah, so me and my business partner, we have um, about one hundred and twelve single families. Um, and there's some duplexes and, and a couple mm -hmm. of quadplexes in there as well. Most of them, honestly, in Austin, cash flow 100 to 150 a month, maybe. Mm. Some of the, there's there's a few other ones that cash a little bit more than that, but we weren't in it really, honestly, for the cash flow. It was um, a was the equity side. We we thought the market was gonna was gonna do well, which it which it has, and mm. that was how we were able to scale. Um, but we were also in it to, you know, do the affordable housing, and we work a lot with the Salvation Army, uh, the women's shelter. So we provide housing mostly for women and children, and so massive cash flow profits weren't really what we were after. It was more about how do we help as many people as possible, um, and then and in the long run, in thirty years time, you know, what does that look like for us as as a business, you know? Wow. And for the listeners that might be more new to real estate investing, right? Can you share with us what do you mean by cash flowing? I mean, not cash flow, but by appreciation and how were you able to scale so fast and to such a large portfolio so quickly? What, what, what did you do? Yeah. So, I mean, for example, the very first property that we purchased, um, we paid, I think, $205,000 for it. Mm -hmm. Um, we got it fixed up and renovated. I think we spent like 45, 50 grand fixing up, tidying up, got rented out, and then we refinanced it. But by then, the market had went up like dramatically during COVID. Mm. 
And so um, it was valued at $780,000, I think it was. Like, so Whoa. it was a ridiculous amount of like equity that we built. Um, so we figured out doing the refi, we've done a cash out refi, obviously. And we were like, how do we now go buy more properties? So that turned into two properties, right? And you get a cash out like that. And then the same thing happened again. The next ones we bought were in the, the 160s or 180s. And they would cash out at the 400s, you know? So um, we were able to kind of ride that market and 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 do as much as we possibly could um, and pull out as much cash as we could, which is why we have a lower cash flow. Um, but that's why we've built such a, you know, a portfolio so quickly is, is by basically just doing the burst strategy on steroids. Yeah, and I can't emphasize this point enough, right? There are so many ways for investors to make money in real estate. Cash flow is one of them, mm -hmm. but another way is tax savings through depreciation deductions. But another way, obviously, is appreciation. For someone like Andy and his partner and his team, they were able to get the best of both worlds where they got the cash flow in a very expensive market, but they also were able to reap the, the appreciation, which is really how wealth is created at the end of the day through real estate. Appreciation is kind of your your needle movers, not the necessarily the $100, $150 cash flow. But I'm sure it helped that you guys had the heart to help people. And I think this is why I really was attracted to you, Andy, when I had the first conversation with you, because I can tell you're a good person just through some of the relationships you're working with, the Salvation Army and, and targeting the population of women and children. This is what's really cool. And this is like, this is such a beautiful story to hear how you went from the first property with almost like a massive disaster to now reaping almost like a couple hundred grand in appreciation on some of these properties. This is really, really cool, man. Like, yeah. congratulations on the success, first of all. This is amazing. Yeah, yeah thank you. Uh, uh, it's been a lot of hard work and a lot of late nights and a lot of stress, but um, I think it's been worth it. Absolutely. So let's let's talk about your team because a hundred and hundred plus rentals is no joke. How did you build your team to acquire so many units? Um, so it was basically just me and, and two other guys that we another Scottish guy and a, a guy from England. So the three of us. Um yeah, that was that was it. I mean, we basically hired a contractor, a general contractor who, um, I think he had two or three employees at the time, and we were able to help him grow his business. I think he now has seventeen or eighteen contractors that work for him. Um, wow. so yeah, I mean, we were we were churning and burning, but it was a it was a fairly small team. Like we were pretty lean and mean. That's really interesting that you create a win win situation for your contractors. Maybe let's talk about this part, right? Because. I know this was one of my fears when I started. It's like, how do I know a contractor isn't giving me the runarounds, isn't giving me like crazy, crazy bids that doesn't make sense. And all they're trying to do is just kind of rip me off, blah, blah, blah. Cause they know I'm a new investor. How did you screen your contractor uh, for your react? Cause obviously it sounds like you have developed an amazing relationship and helped this business grow. But what were you looking for when you were hiring contractors? Was he kind of like the first guy you hired and you're like, boom, I hit the jackpot. <laughs> what, what, what happened there? No, the, um, he was actually the second contractor we hired. The first guy, um, we paid $5,000 to um, on the very first property, and he basically stole that, didn't come back and do anything. So we learned very quickly not to do that again. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. my God. That's awful. 
So and yeah, then, we just basically we, developed a, a relationship with with our contractor that we have now, and you know, kind of laid out the vision of what we want to do. And and he was on board. He was working on very like high level, you know, um, multi million dollar like single family home projects here in Austin. And wow. and we brought him down to the affordable housing area, which I think he found difficult to begin with because he obviously does very very high quality work. And we were like, we don't need it to be like multi-million mm. dollar quality work we're looking at in the 200 dollar range so um we knew he'd done great work and and we trusted him and and he just delivers an excellent product and we've just built a, a great relationship with the guy at this point yeah so if you were to give some tactical advice to newer investors now that you know how your contractor performs right if you had to do it all over again like how would you screen your contractor would you for example, ask for referrals, go to their sites. What kind of advice do you have for investors out here that are looking to hire their own contractor and they have no idea to whether or not they're a good contractor or not? What can you kind of share there? Yeah, I think asking for referrals obviously is a big one, right? But that doesn't always mean that they they are doing what they're saying, right? Um, the other big thing for me was was actually getting to go and view the work that they were doing um, and actually see it. Uh, and, and ask questions and, and make sure they have the patience for you to ask questions and, and see what they're doing and, yeah, and understand, yeah. right? Um, you can learn a lot by just asking a contractor questions. Um, you know, things that don't look right to you in a property, for example, or how would you fix that, blah, 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 right? If, if you have no idea then and they explain it to you in a way that makes sense, then mm. that, that was a big thing for us. Got it. So not only was he kind of giving you bids, but he's also explaining to you what he was doing and why he was doing something like that, right? Okay. Yep. That's yep. a great sign of a Because we, we would walk in and be like, oh, it just needs paint and carpet, right? And he'd be like, no, like this is a structural <laughs> wall. And like like he could just tell like he knew what he was talking about. And the more time you spend with them, obviously, right? Asking them questions, the the more educated you become, which, which means that when you try to hire other contractors, they, they you know, they can't take the piss out of you as much you know because you have a better understanding of what is what needs to be done and, and how it's supposed to be done yeah so this is really interesting because uh, you you mentioned a point about how you were educating your contractor having have done like multi-million dollar homes with exotic finishers i'm assuming um to kind of bring it down a level where it still makes economical sense for your your properties right what sort of if i were to say Someone out there listening right now says, I want to be like Andy when I grow up, right? Which someone is absolutely saying right now. I have a comment in the live that says like, in only three years, oh my God, right? Someone in the live comments literally saying that right now because they want to learn from you. Andy, how were you looking for these properties? Like when you look at a property, what are you looking for in terms of condition? Are you looking for a specific property type, uh, square footage count or you know, level of rehab, like what are you looking for nowadays for what you might deem to be a good deal? For us at the moment, um, it was all about, is it a zero in after a refinance? So we basically spent, well, I spent a whole lot of time, you know, writing spreadsheets and, and trying to forecast, you know, the initial purchase, then the, the renovations and juggling all that. And then what does the refi look on the other side? And then what does the rents look like once it's refied? You know, so trying to understand that whole process from very start to finish. Um, and once the numbers kind of made sense in my head, then I could look at any property at that point and just plug in the numbers and know, does, is this in my buy box? And obviously, once you start underwriting hundreds and hundreds of properties, you start to understand where it is you need to be. 
So we were in like, you know, anything under probably 275,000 um, in certain areas or zip codes within Austin. Um, if we could if we could take a two bedroom, make it a three bedroom or a three bedroom, make it a four bedroom, for example, um, that was an that was an extra play for us to to add that. But we were also buying properties that no one else wanted. Um, so we, we would be buying like heavy foundation lifts that need to be done or new roofs, you know. So we'd be doing like foundations and roofs and new flooring and kitchens and bathrooms and water heaters and ACs. Like we'd be spending, you know, 40 to 60 grand easily on a, on a rehab every single time we'd done it. Um, wow. And we'd take on the projects that nobody else wanted, right? Everyone else wants the easy painting carpets. We were like, yeah. no, like we'll, we'll go to what everyone else doesn't want and, and make that our kind of niche. And I think this is why you're successful. You were willing to do the things that most people were not willing to do or were too, or frankly too scared. Because a lot yeah. of people, if you're, especially if you're new, you're like, I understand what paint and carpet is. I don't know what a foundation issue is. That sounds scary because I can't assign a number to it. And I'm sure nowadays you've gotten so good at underwriting that you probably understand like, hey, if there's a foundation issue, how much rehab or renovation costs should it be? Yeah, I mean, I developed an app literally because, you know, um, Austin was going up in value so quickly and people were just buying mm -hmm. stuff cash, you know, um, like crazy that we had to make offers on the spot. Like, so we go via property and then, like, by the time we were done, like, we had to have a re an offer ready to go. Wow. Um, so I actually developed an app that I just used on my phone where I'd be like, right, plugging in, you know, the whole process within a few minutes so I could then make an offer that I knew was, was going to make sense to me. And I think that keeps your decision-making very objective, right? It's not emotional at the same time. All the no. signs and traits of a great, great investor. Because <laughs> now you can kind of keep be very objective. doesn't meet my return. And I, and I want to make sure this doesn't get lost in the picture. Because when sometimes people analyze deals, they will only look at, okay, what's my cash flow per month? And does that meet my cash and cash return criteria? You underwrite with the refinance out mechanism and that's in that scenario so that you actually understand hey once i pull back on my capital this is probably still cash flow what does my return look like if i don't pull back out all my capital right so i think these are all great marks of a holistic underwriting process that i think people can really learn from you and what you're doing are, are you licensing this app are you selling this app like what what are you doing with this app <laughs> um that's a great question i, I haven't really <laughs> put it out there honestly um, i probably should do something with it because for me at least it's been incredibly beneficial right because i get to project you know a, a year's worth of data almost within you know uh, three to five minutes um and yeah i love it so let let's maybe i want to give some tangible advice to folks because you talked about some very scary things like foundation issues and big hvac stuff right um yep. And converting from two bedrooms to three bedrooms. Let's maybe talk about like three of those scenarios. Let's talk about up upping the bedroom count from like a two to three or three to four. Let's talk yep. about um, how much does it cost to convert a garage or something like that. And maybe let's talk about foundation issues. How much does it cost to like fix a foundation issue and what should people look for? So let's kind of take a step there. Like if I'm new and I'm trying to think about like, well, I want to follow Annie's model. I want to increase the bedroom count so I can get more rent, right? Because affordable housing pays one bedroom count. What should people expect to do on like a conversion like that when they're upping the bedroom count from a three to a four or a two to three? Um, so generally we're about, well, uh, generally we're, we're doing, we're adding bedrooms in, in the garage. Um, mm. So we're doing garage conversions. Got it. 
um and obviously depend on the size of the garage right if it's a single mm-hmm. garage one bedroom if it's double then we'll, we'll try for two um mm-hmm. if, if there's enough space that, that meet the guidelines for for the the, the program like section mm-hmm. eight or the salvation army whatever it is they're looking for because they have slightly different guidelines but generally it's 70 square foot uh, for a bedroom and two points of egress um and generally a garage conversion probably between eight to twelve thousand depending on you know what needs to be done is that with permitting and plans and everything too yep oh, yeah okay. we just have the contractor contractor just takes care of all of that for us on our behalf which is awesome you know because that means we don't have to get involved in that side of it got it so some of your big let's since we covered a garage conversion and bedroom conversion in one go what is like a a big roof replacement or a water replacement water heater replacement and an hrac replacement costs for those like kind of three big items that you have seen in your life um so roof replacements again depending on the size i think we were paying like 240 a square um mm. so we'd, we'd be looking at probably between three and eight grand i guess depending on on the size of the property yeah makes sense makes sense um but again we were also you know we found a roofer very very early on um and he ah. was doing 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 great work and so that helped his business and also helped us at the same time as well got it how about for a water heater are you getting when you're adding additional bedrooms are you getting a bigger water heater to accommodate the larger family size at all yeah so generally we we move the water heaters into the attic um because it mm. lets us reclaim a bit of an extra bit of floor space you know if it's for a pardon me a closet or something else um and we put the water heaters up in the attic so we generally upgrade them at that point that's a great tip what does that what does that typically cost you guys to put it in the water heater and put it move it to the attic um generally between 800 and 1100 depending on the size oh. of the water heater and how much space there is in the attic and yeah stuff that's like that. not bad at all yeah not bad at all. that's what i'm saying yeah, like about- I, I, w- I wouldn't take the pricing that we get uh you know um verbatim because we do mm-hmm. get we get a lot of discounts because we're buying and doing a lot of stuff at bulk at this point so that's um, and that's right right every market is going to be different um yep. you might be in a different price market and your rehab and labor and your material costs will probably be very different right yep um how about so for your garage conversions right you probably need air right new yep. hvac system or something like that are you guys providing and putting in like a whole new duct system in there and or are you guys putting in mini splits into your garage uh yeah again it varies uh we've done mini splits we've done window units we've done um ducting it all depends on what is above and what's available um to us and and the specific house that we're working on all right let's go let's go mini split and duct in work how much will a mini split typically cost you guys to kind of put in for a garage conversion just a rough range um probably between two and a half to three and a half thousand Makes a lot of sense. That, that sounds right. How about for a yep. duct in if you guys got to replace the HVAC and do some duct work for, for the house? Uh, generally, for replacing the full HVAC and all the ducting, um, we're about 5500 to 62 I believe, is the highest we've paid. Got it. So for all the listeners out there right now, again, don't take these, these numbers verbatim, but now you guys don't have to be afraid or like, and he just talked about all these different problems that they had to face. One, do garage conversions, get permits, do all this work to replace some of your big capital expenditures. 
there's just a number at the end of the day. And when you plug it in the numbers and you follow Annie's model, that's how you determine whether a deal will work or not. And I think this is just such a scientific way of breaking it down. And that's how I can tell that you're a great analyzer. Is like you, you're so methodical in the way you go about this underwriting process, Annie, that it just makes so much sense when you keep it so simple. And sometimes people overcomplicate things when they don't need to. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Um, so I want to get into affordable housing now. And you, you've had some partnerships with Salvation Army and um, targeting the women and children for some of your, your rentals. How did you build these relationships? And why did you even pursue like these specific relationships? Yeah, so um, Section 8 was basically our second property. We found an investor here in Austin who had... I think like 80 or 85-ish properties um, all in Section 8. And we kind of were like, we want to be like him. How do we do that? Um, but we bought his property not knowing what Section 8 was. And he was trying to exit the market. And he basically explained to us what the process was and kind of walked us through that, you know, Section 8 is a good thing and how it gets to help people and, and that kind of stuff. And, and again, during COVID, it's guaranteed rent from the government, right, which was a huge thing for us. It was... It was a uh, risk mitigation, a huge risk mitigation, you know, because all the forbearances and, you know, moratoriums that people were doing on rent, like the government continued to pay regardless all the way through COVID, right? So um, it was it was risk mitigation, but it's also good karma for us where we were able to help people. Um, there's just so many people in need that, that need help and, and we just wanted to, to jump on board and help as many people as possible. So what did your relationship with like Salvation Army and and other organizations do for you? Were they were they almost like a renter lead source for you and your yeah, company? Yeah, absolutely. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah, so basically so when you we, have would, a, we, would, go ahead. we would find a property um, and before we would market it to anyone else, we would put it out to those those charities and those, those um, I guess, companies or lead sources, as you put them, mm -hmm. um, we'd, we'd send it to them first and we would give them first dibs on if it was a, a good fit for them. If it wasn't, then we would, we would go the Section 8 route. But our, our, we kind of struck a relationship of like, we will send it to you guys and you guys have five to 10 days to decide if this is a good fit for you. And if it's not, then we will move on to something else. Got it. So it sounds like the benefit was they they probably do some pre-screening on their own, right? So they say, hey, yes. we know these people, we work with them, maybe they're social workers, et cetera. And they're like, hey, we know these are good people, they're going to take good care of your home, check these people out, see if they're going to be a good fit for your home. But then at the same time, it sounds like you are almost pre-leasing it, like maybe before the unit is completely ready, you are already finding a tenant already, so that lowers your vacancy. Am I understanding the benefits there correctly? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, we, we generally don't have a whole lot of vacancy. Um, we have a property at the moment that, we're, um, that we just bought um, like a week and a half ago, and it's already leased like, for when it's, when it's going to be ready in, in a month and a half. Wow. wow. And I think for the listeners right now, this is how much demand there is for affordable housing. It's yep. your fear should not be if I go into affordable housing, what if I buy this property and no one rents it? And he just gave you really significant examples of one, how much demand there is. And even if there isn't demand, there's a way that you can get ahead of your competitors by one, putting out a great finished product. And at the same yep. time, you're working and establishing relationships with local nonprofits, et cetera, whatever those organizations might be to get your property 
up in front of great tenants who would take care of your home and it will stay there a long time. This is absolutely amazing, man. Uh, yep. That was our whole thing. I, you know, we, we, we often get tenants that come to, to view the property and their landlords, you know, kicking them out because they want to sell the place or whatever the case may be. And um, a lot of them are, do we ever have to leave, you know? And it's like, mm. no, absolutely not. Like that, I'm not in the business of, you know, buying something and, and keeping it for a year or two. Like a, this is a long-term hold for me. Um, and hopefully it helps you and your family out for the next 10, 15 years. And this is such a great point. Like so many people miss the point about um, some of your biggest expenses might not be repairs. Some of your biggest expenses in real estate is vacancy. vacancy. That's right. And Andy just talked about how he has folks that want to stay 5, 10, 15 years. That's almost knocking down your vacancy expenses to zero. Almost. It can't be zero exactly, but it's almost close enough. That is a great, great way to manage a business by keeping your expenses low. Um, well, let's get into the next part, right? Uh, we talked a little bit about the myth about how Section 8 tenants are generally associated with like guns, drugs, and drama. What has been your experience with affordable housing tenants specifically, Andy? And any sort of way, notions or data points that you can tell us that can help dispel that myth? Like, what has been your experience with them? Yeah, I mean, um, I guess out of the hundreds, right, I can give you some stats on that. We have had um, one eviction, um, wow. which which sucked, you know. But one out of a hundred in, in almost four years, which I think is wow. not a problem. Um, our turnover rate is not that high. Um, generally, when people leave, is because they have either had another kid and they need another bedroom, uh, and mm. it's just something you know I can't add bedrooms from from thin air, so. Uh, we will mm -hmm. either we either move them to another property that we have bought, um, or they go elsewhere. Um, but yeah, we don't we don't generally have a whole lot of vacancy. And yeah, I mean generally the tenants are all super nice, super friendly. Um, they've all got young kids, same as myself, you know. Um, mm. So yeah, they they are more inclined, I feel, to keep the place looking nice purely because of the inspection process that happens on a yearly basis, which I think a lot of people miss out on. Mm. Um, you know, so if I, if we have a tenant that we have one tenant actually that went round and broke every single window in the house every year, all fourteen windows, she would smash. I, I don't know how she would smash them, but we would go and the inspector would be like, "Well, this is not a landlord issue. Like, this is a tenant issue. Y'all have thirty days to fix this, or we will take action to to solve it." Right. Um, wow. And so that becomes their issue to then take care of. Obviously, if we have inspection issues, then we take care of that on our own. But um, I like that we don't have to pay for things that we didn't break, you know? There you have it, guys. I mean, 100 tenants, one eviction in, in four years, that's an amazing statistic. And couple that with low, low, low turnover, that's a very, very profitable way to, again, do good and do well at the same time. Um, well, let's talk about eviction because everyone, for some reason, will always focus on a, on the worst case scenario. What happened in that eviction, and like, how much did it cost for you to kind of remedy everything between legal fees and lost rent and everything? Um, so legal fees, I believe. Well, we use a company called Nationwide Eviction, um, and I think in total it was like seven hundred dollars. Wow. Okay. Um, wasn't very expensive at all um she just wasn't paying rent 
and you know like as as much as i like to be charitable like uh, i have to have a precedence mm-hmm. that has to be set and we have yep. to follow the, the the rules of the lease you know like we sign the lease at the start and everyone's you know in, in good um good mindsets i guess at the very start and everyone's friends but if, if things go wrong then you can point to the lease and say we've assigned we've agreed this like this is this is before anything went wrong so we have to we have to abide the, the rules of the lease and and we enforce the rules of the lease you know you have to otherwise you know you give an inch they, they take a mile and yeah. so that was it so we we had to um follow through with the eviction i think we ended up spending about three thousand dollars on on our rehab um luckily they didn't you know wreck the wreck the house but They've they've lost lifetime eligibility to the Section Eight program, you know, which which sucks. But, um, you know. And I think this. Would, was, you know, how long did it take for you to evict the tenant in this scenario? Um, I believe from start to finish it was like forty-five days. Oh, that's not that long. So they they didn't pay rent, and then you started the eviction process. When you started eviction process, it took about another forty-five days. Cost you probably about. Thirty-seven hundred bucks if you count the rehab and also the uh, the eviction costs. So, yep. again, there you guys have it, right? Bad scenario. You you would hate to evict somebody, but in this scenario, thank God it wasn't worse. Um, what this wasn't the same woman that was breaking all your windows, right? No, this is a different woman. She still lives okay. in one of our properties. She still continues to break our windows, but she continues every year to to replace them. So. We, we we get new windows every year in our properties. Uh, um, yeah, it's just... Oh, and she's paying for them now. Yes. Yep. Oh, okay. I just want to make sure I, I caught that. Maybe the first time the, the housing authority might have made you fix it because they thought you were responsible. No, we, like they do an inspection at the very beginning to make sure the safe is clean, the, the house is clean, safe, and habitable. Yeah. Um, and so they know that we are not over there breaking windows like that. Like I'm not in the business of breaking windows. <laughs> <laughs> right, because that wouldn't make any sense at all. Yeah. Um, so okay. They, so that's so they, so really... they make the tenant um, re- replace the replace anything that's broken. Yeah. I mean, if you go if they go punch a hole in the wall, like that's not I didn't do that, right? So they they basically give the list of tenant repairs versus landlord repairs. You know. Got it. Got it. And I think you also highlighted a point where the person you had to evict lost their lifetime eligibility for affordable housing. Like in general, guys. Like when. Like where I live right now, affordable housing, if you want to get Section 8 voucher in San Diego County, it's like 12 to 15 years. So naturally, folks are incentivized to not lose their voucher status because they have probably waited a tremendously long, long time to get that voucher in the first place. Again, it's another incentive for them to take care of their home, be respectful. So these myths of guns, drugs, and drama, it's like Andy is dispelling that notion right in front of us i i have you had any other horror stories with any of your tenants andy um i mean not like horror stories like drun, guns and drugs and stuff um we had one one property got shot at um oh because because they had someone living there that they shouldn't have had living there um mm. and they were involved in some gang stuff you know and um you know we we took care of that and then it's other stuff just random ridiculous things like we have some tenants who we've shown up to do a property inspection they've had pigs in the house and 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 goats and and just random like you know things like that and it's like this cannot like you have to get rid of them like immediately like by the end of day type thing you know um so you know they they make some hilarious um 
mistakes, I guess, sometimes, and you just have to keep on top of it and, and rectify it. Yeah. So this is really good, right? So again, all these myths, they are the exception, certainly, certainly not the rule. Um, Andy, what, what other advice do you have for folks that are looking to invest in affordable housing? Like you have some relationships with the Salvation Army and, and other organizations. What are you, are you getting involved in screening the tenants yourself? Like what, what does that look like? How are you choosing and selecting the tenants that comes and lives in your home? Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we have the final say on, on everyone who moves into one of our properties. Um, generally section eight, they screen obviously. Right. Um, so mm -hmm. no, nobody has major felonies generally. Um, but we obviously do a background credit check and stuff like that as well. Um, we generally find that they, they don't have great credit, which is fine, you know, um, and we, and we work with them on that. Um, but obviously there's things that we just don't allow, right. We, we don't allow rapists and murderers and, and that kind of stuff, dangerous felons uh, mm -hmm. to live in our properties. Um, and apart from that, like it's, it's fairly straightforward. Like, yeah, just no, no dangerous people in our houses. You're like, just, just be smart about who you allow to, to live there. Got it. So you got some pretty good criteria about there, like no, no felonies and credit credit score is okay to not be a big factor in there. Are you looking for, do you allow folks with like evictions or history evictions in, into your homes or is that one of your um, deal breakers too? If they have had an eviction in the last five years, we don't allow it. But generally if they're, if they're on section eight, they, they, they haven't had an eviction, right? Cause they'd no longer be in the program. So uh, mm, we, don't, we, don't, we don't see that a whole lot. Yeah. Good section point. 8 does a lot of pre-screening for us, right? You know, so like we know generally people who are on Section 8, like, yeah, they might have money issues or they may have credit issues, but generally they're good people, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Do you have any idea of like what the wait list looks like in, in your city or in your county for um, Yeah, Austin haven't opened up Section 8 wait list since 2016, and there's, I think, still 5,000 vouchers. Whoa, so they haven't... There's five thousand people waiting, and no, they have not. There's five. There's five thousand people with vouchers looking for housing right now, and they haven't um, opened up the the wait list. I don't know how long the wait list is, but they haven't opened up since 2016. Wow, that is that is a little sad um, because they haven't opened up the wait list for seven years, and there's still five thousand people waiting for them. Yeah, I think that really gives a really good idea of what how much demand there is mm -hmm. for affordable housing. Like they haven't been open, open a wait list for, Oh my God, that is such a long time. So I think if people really wanted to look at, Hey, one, everything that Andy has shown you today through his experience is like, you can look at the numbers, try to figure out if the deal establish relationships to, to screen and get the best of the best tenants in there. And now you know that there's such a ridiculous amount of demand out there it's almost like a no-brainer for you to get into the space. It's there's such a such incredible demand for this, and maybe this is the question that I ask everybody, Andy, that comes on the show. Is like, why why do you think affordable housing, particularly the lack of supply of affordable housing, is so hard to solve for? What are your thoughts there? I believe, from what I understand, is there's a huge negative. Um, mentality i guess around what section it is um almost feels like they need to rebrand um 
from section eight to something else, you know, because a lot of people just hear the word section eight and immediately they think it's negative and it's absolutely not. I completely agree with you, man. I think that's like the one fight that I'm really working on right now and the myth that I'm trying to dispel. And one of the main reasons why I wanted to bring you on is like you have a significant portfolio. You have great tenants. And I think I'm sure this is why they rebranded the Section 8 voucher system to housing choice voucher. Now they're trying to get away from the Section 8 name. But at the end of the day, people still refer it as a Section 8 voucher because that's just over time people get so used to a terminology that it's very hard to change how people talk. It's like when you go tell someone to go Google it, right? You don't tell someone to go Bing it, right? It's just like yep. things like that. You get so stuck with a way of saying things that it's very hard to kind of change that rebranding when it's so entrenched in society. So I think you yep. kind of hit the nail on the head there where people associate a negative connotation and that ultimately leads to a lack of supply. Um, yep. Is there any other advice that you would give investors that are looking to get into the affordable housing space, like things that you have learned that you would like to kind of share on how to become successful in this space? My biggest advice, honestly, to anybody is just, just take action. Just, just do something, you know, get involved, ask questions, like, um, you know, reach out to your local authorities and, and see what they're doing and see how you can help. And yeah. And I think that's something everybody can do. I think you can go to your local housing authority today, just like how I went to San Diego and asked, like, hey, what does a whitelist look like? Don't don't mm -hmm. just believe Andy and myself. Like, go there. Go to the local authorities and ask them, hey, what does a waitlist look like? And now all of a sudden you will figure out, like, hey, does this work? Maybe Andy will, will license his app one day and I can download it and I can figure <laughs> out how do I calculate if this is a deal or not, right? And I think then that's how you remove the fear. And we talked about some of the big, big rehab costs today about like HVAC and stuff like that. Oh, I forgot. I was going to ask you like what foundation issues are the, are we talking about like 10, 20 grand in fixes or 50 grand, a hundred grand? Like what, what do foundation issues even look like? I completely forgot. I was going to ask you that question earlier, but I don't want the, I, the audience to be afraid of that stuff. Yeah. Um, it really varies, honestly. Um, and mm -hmm. Austin, um, you know, there's two types of houses. There's there's houses that have had foundation work, and there's there's houses that are getting it. You know, so it's it's going to happen at some point. Um, uh, and obviously there's two types of foundations. There's there's slab, and then there's pier and beam. At least in Austin, um, pier and beam obviously is is cheaper and a little bit easier because you you can get under the house, and you know if when you move the foundation, the pipes crack. Um, for example. It's easier on a pier and beam to get under there and, and replace pipes. Whereas if it's a slab foundation, you're you're basically digging up, digging. you know, slab, concrete slab to, to find those pipes to, to fix them. Um, and it does happen. Um, and it has happened. You just have to be aware of it. Um, so, yeah, it can either be, you know, five, six thousand dollars. It could be the very first house we've done was was twenty seven thousand dollars. Hmm. So, and for really new investors, how can they tell that there is a foundation issue? Like, what should they be looking for to suspect whether or not there's a foundation issue with the property? Um, so I'm at the point now where I can just walk in, and I can just I feel it. It's almost like my <laughs> equilibrium just like goes off, and I'm like, this house is off, and that like you know you start to kind of track where where the house is going. Um, one trick that I learned um, was to take like a little small little marble type thing and then put it in the middle of the floor and then it will tell you if the house is, you know, pointing in a certain direction and that kind of gives you like a little like easy idea. 
Um, and then the other thing, Dude. obviously, is just take someone with you who knows about that sort of stuff, right? Um, but you can also look for cracks and like, but there's certain cracks that are not foundation issues, and it's just settling cracks. So you can get like put off by cracks very quickly. But the little marble <laughs> trick was the thing that done it for me. It's so funny you said the marble trick because I was gonna call you a walking marble when when you said I can walk in there <laughs> and tell it's already all like dude you're like a walking marble and then you said oh just bring a marble yourself um you are a marble man you are the gem dude so yeah yeah I mean you is... can you can tell like I don't know if you walk enough properties and you, if you do this enough um it's it's honestly experience and, and you can tell like I don't know how much it's off and but I can I can gauge I can be like I know that that is off that needs to be fixed versus we're good here. Yeah, so I mean, we're getting to the near the end of the show right now, Andy. And for what do you need in your business today? Are you looking for more private capital, more deals? Like, how can people work together with you on deals or future deals? Yeah. So, uh, in complete honesty, um, I, I lost my W two about six six weeks ago. So I've been I've been doing this like kind of I guess as a side hustle um, for the last you know three four years and and my the job i was working basically they liquidated the entire company so now i, mm. I have the opportunity to work this full time um I, I honestly i'm focusing on getting cash flow into into my my personal life i guess right because i need to replace Got that it. income that i've lost um so i'm still continuing to buy i have recently spun up a direct to seller business so i can continue to buy more properties and go direct to seller try and help Mm. Um, those motivated sellers that, that that need that need help, um, try and problem solve their issues, um, and kind of be like a real estate consultant, I guess, uh, yeah, in, in that sort of fashion. Um, just because I have so much experience doing like all many diff- so many different ways, right? I could do creative financing and, and and I could do regular financing and commercial, like so I have a a wide knowledge of like the whole kind of spectrum. Mm. Um, so I have a lot of ways to to be able to help people. And so that's kind of what I'm focusing on right now and, and how I can monetize the skill set that I have um, to help other people, whether that be people that I'm maybe potentially mentoring in the future um, mm-hmm. or people who want to sell their properties. Yeah, I, this is great. I mean, for people that are listening right now, if you come across like a motivated seller, especially if it's in the market that like Andy can show up to the door and say, like, hey, this is this is who I am as a person. I help yep. people in need. I'm an affordable housing investor. There's a hundred plus homes that we have put onto an affordable housing program. Like for so folks that are in distress, like this is, I I mean, I would personally sell my home to you, Andy, because I would want to say, hey, I am now in a bad position. Let's say I'm in a foreclosure for some reason. And I, and I know I'm about to enter a, a part of my life where I'm going to be in distress, where I need a little bit more assistance. I would much rather sell to someone that I know is out there helping folks like me kind of get back on their feet and get back in it. So I think this is really, really cool, man. And and I, I want to take this time to like really publicly like thank you for what you do, Andy. And like if if it weren't for people like you in this world, I would have never had the home I grew up in. And I can't thank you enough for being a kind heart out there that is willing to one, come on the show and share all your secrets with the world. Not many people want to come on and say like, oh, this is how much HVAC costs or this is how much a foundation costs. But not only do you do that, you also help other folks and think about like, hey, these are some of the issues that might come up. But really, this is this is it. This is how you deal with them. I would love to work with you somehow, some way on a deal in the future. And seriously, man, thank you. Thank you for what you do. This is, I, I feel really happy talking to you today. I was really, really looking forward to this conversation for weeks now. I've been trying to get you on a podcast for weeks and I, I have been pumped 
to kind of come on and hear your story, man. Yeah, man, I, I appreciate it. And again, um, I've always been in a position where I'm, I'm able to give and, and, and help people. Um, and I'm more than happy to do that. And now I'm hoping over the next, you know, three to six months while I start my own business that, um, that I maybe get some of that karma back and, 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 you know, help me out a little bit. So, yeah. So, Hey, if people want to reach out to you, how can they get in touch with you? What are your socials? What, where can people find out more about you and your company? Yeah. So I'm on Facebook, um, Instagram, I guess I don't really use them a whole lot. Um, but at the Andrew Cairns, so T H E A N D R E W C A I R N S. Um, and my business website is itex.com. Um, so yeah, just, just DM me, reach out to me. Yeah. More than happy to have conversations with anybody. All right. We'll make sure we put these into the show notes. Make sure you follow Andy at the Andrew Cairns. And if you listen to this podcast all the way to the end, please, 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 please give us a shoot as a comment about any questions that you would have wished that we would ask Andy and maybe we can bring Andy back on into the future, but please don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at Kent underscore he. And if this podcast is, is informational and gives you good content that you guys really enjoy, please share it with other folks. Leave a five-star review on Apple podcasts because we really want to share our affordable housing mission with the rest of the world. So that's it, man. Andy, thank you for coming on and we are out. Thanks, man.